Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Hello, friends. It is October, which means it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and the Cyber Guy Podcast is back with a new episode. Finally, I apologize for the last couple of weeks. I've been focused more on some other things, including the morning Cyber Smart Morning News Update, which you can also get from all of your favorite podcast providers. If you are already a subscriber to the Cyber Smart Podcast I was doing, um, the morning news update basically took over that slot. So you would still be receiving these particular episodes, but as always, I appreciate, um, new followers. I appreciate you sharing information on that podcast. It is about 10 to 15 minutes every day on cyber news that occurred, um, in the previous 24 hours. It's usually six articles, more or less. It's not every cyber news piece, but it's cyber news that I, I can kind of expound upon and make you aware of, again, because as I like to say, knowledge is protection. The more we understand the threats targeting us, we can assess our risk and proceed wisely. So we got that going for us, which is nice. Um, and like I mentioned, it is the start of Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I'm recording this on Sunday, October 1st, the first day. I did post, I'll be honest, I posted a LinkedIn topic. And here's what I'm kind of doing. I was going to do on LinkedIn for Cybersecurity Awareness Month is post some article, some writing every day. A lot of people do videos. I, I don't like doing videos. I'm not very good at them. You don't want to see my ugly face. So let's be honest, that's how that is. So I, I tend to like to write. So I had come up with a bunch of topics. Or actually, ChatGPT, honestly, had come up with topics that kind of uh, was going to have a satirical focus. But they suck. Um, the first one I did is on machines and robots and blah, blah, blah. And I read it like this blows. But I posted it anyway. So if you read it, I apologize that I posted it out there. I'm going to take a different approach to Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I have I got like 12 hours before tomorrow morning to figure out what to put for October 2nd. But I'll come up with something. So hopefully that'll be there. And um, this art, this episode of the Cyber Guy Podcast, I should mention, um, is is one I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, there was a, an FBI agent I worked with in Cleveland. Her name is Suzanne Lewis Johnson. She has since left the Bureau for bigger and brighter things, and she'll talk a little bit about that. But um, I, she has got a great origin story. So, again, it goes to show that you don't – a lot of people think to go in the FBI, you have to be a lawyer, accountant, or, you know, be in the military, be a law enforcement uh, person. You don't. As, as Suzanne will note. And she did some great things. She she was a director's award winner. Um, I liked her a lot because she's outspoken. She's that's a fan of that. That was always my thing too. So uh, we are birds of a feather in that particular perspective. So I think you'll enjoy that interview. Uh, that's coming up in a few minutes. Uh, and that will be her origin story for this. But I just kind of want to talk about some other things going forward. You know, let, let's talk about cybersecurity awareness month a little bit. In all honesty, it's going to be people in the cybersecurity business and to, or the cybersecurity realm talking to each other about cybersecurity stuff and how more people need to be aware. The people who need to be aware are probably not going to be paying attention to what we say. So it's kind of interesting. I'm kind of taking, I don't know why I'm taking that tact. Um, I kind of honestly just like all these organized months of stuff. And so, you know, probably I have a bad attitude toward it on the first day of it. Maybe I will get better as I go forward. But I mean, someone talk me off the, off the ledge. If you hear this and you want to talk me off the ledge of it, feel free to do so. But, um, you know, maybe that'll be my, my October 2nd post is what are we doing here? That, that sounds, uh, maybe I will do that. Anyway, certainly be a Substack writing in there. So one thing I want to note is you can follow me on a bunch of different social media platforms as well. Now I'm on Instagram, which I hate Instagram. Frankly, I don't really use it for what it's used for. I don't do a lot of videos. I usually use static pictures and post stuff that I post on LinkedIn on there. So let's be honest. That's what that is. Facebook, kind of the same thing. 
I do use pick Facebook for some pickleball or organizing. So I do use it for that. I do have a new Substack, So look for the cyber guy on Substack. I do some writing there. It's all free. Doesn't cost you anything. Uh, and X. So formerly Twitter, I do have a Twitter account, the cyber guy there. And basically again, it's a rehashing of what I'm posting on LinkedIn, but trying to post them in different places. LinkedIn is always going to be the best place to find me. LinkedIn.com slash in slash Darren Mott is where you can get me there. I'm always uh, happy to talk to folks who want to email me, Darren at the cyberguy.com. You can certainly do that. Uh, and I think that is the main points here. Yeah. So social media stuff. And of course the cyber smart morning news update, download it, start listening. If you're bored in the morning, it'll give you 15 minutes to kill some time and find out what happened overnight and what you need to be aware of, especially if you're in cybersecurity or it, you can figure out if you have something that I noted was compromised that you have to patch, then you'll know to patch it. So you got that going for you, which is nice. But without any further ado, that's enough of me pontificating here. Let's get to the real reason um, this podcast is put out this this particular week. It is to talk to former FBI Special Agent Suzanne Lewis-Johnson. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed talking to her. So I've been waiting a long time to have this particular interview. I want to welcome to the Cyber Guy podcast and with her origin story, former fellow FBI special agent and current CEO of No More Trafficking, Suzanne Lewis-Johnson. Suzanne, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. Thanks for having me. Now, full disclosure, we both worked together in the Cleveland field office from 2009 to 2011. So I'm sure when we get to that part of your story, we may break off into that a little bit um, and talk about parts of that that you want to, and we'll avoid those parts that you don't want to. So I certainly get that. So, so, uh, Tell us, well, so let's go ahead and just, let's just get right into it. As we mentioned in the little pre-show, this is just kind of your story. You know, how did you get from where, from where you started to where you are today? So, so lead us down that story path. Right. You know, I've said at times, I feel like a pinball in a pinball machine because we have a plan and dreams for how things might look, um, but our plans and our dreams don't always match up. You know, becoming an FBI agent for me was a dream, not a goal. That didn't seem very realistic. I grew up in the tiniest of towns in the middle of nowhere. I have a brother-in-law who says that we're actually from 50 miles from nowhere, that he identifies nowhere. And then uh, where my family was, was 50 miles from that. So never knew anybody Oh, sorry. So where is that? So you're saying 55, because I think I can beat you. So where, where, where was that? Graham, Pennsylvania, Cameron County. It was at the time I was growing up, I think 97% forest, except during hunting and fishing season, our population multiplied. There was one stoplight in the entire county. Okay. So how many people in your little, did you live in a town or a village? Uh, well, the town, the county seat of Emporium, which means center of trade, um, had, I think, about 1,500 people at that time. Okay. I lived six miles outside of town. Okay, we were pretty close. I had, I, I think there was may, maybe 15 to 1,600 in my little town, but we had no stoplights. And no I like to, stoplights? no, I like to tell, well, the problem was they decided they were going to get a stoplight in the little, I lived in a village, mind you. Yeah. We, they were going to get a stoplight, but the, the village board couldn't decide on the colors. So that's why they didn't go with that. So I like to tell people it's, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. Cause it was in the upsta yeah. upstate New York, right on the Canadian border. So middle yeah, of the anyway. Sounds about right. Well, actually, so we would drive to Olean, which is just across the border yep. into New York to go to the movies, which was an hour away, or we would drive to Dubois, Pennsylvania 
which was also an hour away. So, I mean, it was an amazing privilege to grow up there in the sense of community and really the natural resources that were accessible, but other sorts of things you really had to make an effort to okay. access civilization. Gotcha. Well, you do have me kind of beat that on that one then. So, okay. So sorry, I interrupted your story. So carry on. You're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So I didn't really know anything about the field of law enforcement from direct connection at that time, but I went away to school uh, in Massachusetts, about 10 hours from home to this tiny little college no one had ever heard of. I went from there, uh, realized I, I'd always had a passion for writing, but I'd always been the absolute shyest person in my class. I would be terrified if I needed to get up in front of, of people and talk. And yet I always have had this passion for justice. And there have been times where I just couldn't keep quiet advocating for some injustice in front of me or beside me, even on the playground from the time that that I was small. So I went from this little community away to school and I majored in English. There was no journalism major or writing major. So I ended up majoring in English literature, did a couple of newspaper internships and did a public relations internship as well. And what I found being this shy, introverted person that I was, public relations was incredibly uncomfortable for me because I was working for this amazing agency with great people, very qualified uh, professionals, and I was selling products, which I didn't really feel very passionate about. So for me to speak, I need to be speaking, motivated by that place of I'm doing something good for the world. And so that was uh, not a really comfortable place for me to be in where I was calling up journalists and making these cold calls, trying to pitch them on covering stories and products. So that took me then from I graduate, having decided I love to write, I don't really feel called to the world of marketing or communications. Uh, but I went and worked for this nonprofit organization after college called Habitat for Humanity International. I went to their headquarters. I sent off some resumes to some places. I saw that they had some writing jobs, applied for those. But what I was invited to come do was PR and mm. marketing, exactly what I decided I wasn't going to do. Uh, they had what was called an extended volunteer program at that time. And it meant you could come, you'd get a stipend for living expenses every month. You would live in their housing, you'd get health insurance, and you would have this amazing opportunity to work for a global nonprofit addressing the need for simple, decent, affordable housing. And so I felt that I was passionate enough about that cause, that maybe this was somewhere that I could be um, that I could bring those communication skills and experience into play, even though I was doing exactly what I decided not to do, which was working in marketing. And I spent almost 10 years there off and on. I worked at the headquarters. I was hired into a salaried position as a media associate. And then uh, when I got married, my husband was in the military and that meant I could no longer live and work at headquarters. And so I, I followed him, but as I was doing that, I was being brought different projects from, from Habitat that I did in a, on a consultant basis and then was brought back onto staff again. And I got to travel the country and even travel 
internationally going places, you know, I've said as a 20 something year old, just out of school, I had no business going some of the places that I did following around the CEO of, of a global nonprofit. I was working with members of Congress. I worked with every governor's office in the country. I worked with some of the largest corporations in the country. And then at the same time, I was working with these people who are in such desperate need. And I was seeing so many broken circumstances and so much injustice that they had experienced that was a part of where they, it was a part of what had taken them to this place uh, in life where they needed, they needed shelter, but they also needed some other things to surround them. And so again, the FBI, you know, it's always been this thing that you see the movies, you see the television shows, mm-hmm. you uh, hear the stories, but I still didn't know anyone who was working in that arena. It was this thing that looked great on the screen, but I was not considering going down that road until someone close to me unexpectedly went down that road and became an agent. And I call him the accidental agent because after becoming an agent, after applying for the Bureau, after getting to know other people's stories, for most people, it's really something you have to work hard to do, I think. (laughs) There's a lot of people who dream and strive and pursue that opportunity and, and don't get into the Bureau. Uh, But in this particular instance, I had the opportunity to watch someone close to me go through the process. And rather than having that perception from what's painted on a screen and told through these dramas on TV, I was getting a little exposure to the real thing and the process. And I kept asking questions and he was encouraging me to do it. Well, maybe that's something you should pursue. So where were you at this time? Uh, At that time, I was telecommuting, doing some work for Habitat for Humanity. I had two children and I was living in the state of Kentucky. Okay, fair enough. So by that point in time, I had graduated from college in Massachusetts. I went to work in Georgia at Habitat for Humanity's international headquarters, had traveled all over the place working for them and gotten married, lived in Georgia for a little bit, and now was living in Kentucky, right outside of Fort Knox, Kentucky. And so it was the Bureau that that took our family on the path Mm -hmm. to Cleveland and and where I met you. But it was just um, having that close-up view, understanding that I have this incredible heart for justice, seeing needs in front of me, seeing injustice that I couldn't fix from where I was, and now being encouraged that this the sort of dream job that I didn't think I could pursue, that that there might actually be an avenue for me to do that. And my family encouraged me to, to pursue it. And then uh, there were a couple... There were a couple other folks um, at Fort Knox, uh, one in particular who ended up applying as well. And we kind of went through the process together. So so that helped as well. And, um, you know, for me, it took really some thought for all of the pieces. For me, I think it was an eight page 
resume for kind of the the trailblazer who went went before me. Um, when he applied, he filled out this little form online that he said looked a little like, you know, when you go to a website and you fill out a little information, uh, if you're going to a college website or a volunteering site or something like that, you just fill out your name, address, phone number, and maybe one line about yourself. That's what it looked like for him. And what year, what, uh, what year was that? If, what, what year was that for him? Oh, I don't even know. I don't recall. Mid nineties, maybe. Cause that kind of sounds familiar to mine. When I, when I went in, I was like, it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big online application. It was like, Hey, yeah, this is interesting. I'd like to try. Yeah, it was, I want to say it was the early 2000s, okay. early to mid 2000s. And, you know, once he got to Quantico, he was the only person in his class too, who had filled out that version. Oh, wow. so it was just okay. interesting, you know, how one thing affects the not affects another because he would not have gone in if he had had to fill out this long application and think through every detail of his life and write the eight page resume that I had done. He never would have pursued it. Mm -hmm. He literally thought they were going to send him some information and instead got a phone call that you've applied for the bureau. Will you come take this test? Yep. And lots of people do the long application and never get the phone call, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try because you might, you might end up getting the call. Right. So So I just, I started the process and it was a long process of about two years, but um, landed in late 08 at the FBI Academy. Okay. Maybe it was 07. This is terrible. Yeah, that should be like your, your entry to Quantico should be ingrained in your mind. Mine was, I had my uh, 24. It was, it was December of 2007. Okay. I was class of 08, There you go. That was ingrained. It all comes back. It all comes back. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you go through Quantico and then I, obviously you get assigned to Cleveland. Yeah. So our class was something. I would love to reconnect. We need to have a class reunion. Our class uh, lost more new agents than any class in the history of <laughs> during the, during Quantico. I mean, during the during we the. thought there should be some sort of recognition. <laughs> for it's all sorts of different reasons, and that was when uh, that's when Lost was big. Do you remember Lost? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So I remember saying to my roommate in the morning, I just love it when I wake up and you're still here because people would disappear and you wouldn't find out until <laughs> later okay. what had happened that they were gone. Uh, so I don't recall how large our class was at the time we graduated, but it was much smaller than what we had started with. Uh, and our class was also the very first class where you were given a career path. Oh, uh, yes. So the career. That was also a really interesting part of my process and part of how I met you as well, um, because I did not have any sort of background in cyber technology whatsoever. And yet the Bureau needed some people and they career passed me cyber at the time. Well, you, you were a writer, so you knew how to word use word, which is computer programs. So that was good. That was enough at the time. There it is. There it is. That's exactly <laughs> what it was, was that eight pages included the word computer a number of times <laughs> from one of my very first jobs in high school when I was doing data entry yep. to writing web copy when I was doing marketing that, you know, I wrote a word document and somebody else did all the tech stuff to put it online. But mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what, that's what did it. But 
cyber, as you know, the um, crimes against children. Yeah. Well, and that particular mm -hmm. division. And so that was definitely part of the path that got me where I was. And I thought it was terrible news <laughs> when right. I was career path cyber, but really it was what got me to this place where I could do work that was so aligned with my passion. Right. And we should note that you were in the Cleveland division, but not in Cleveland. Correct. Yes. Right. Yes. I was assigned to the Cleveland field office, but I was actually in in the Canton resident agency, which I'm not sure how you explain it, how I'll explain it sometimes. Like I've heard the the 56 field offices mm. described as kind of the mothership. Yeah. And then there's all these satellites that are further out. Yep. That's satellite offices. That's a, that's that's the best way people understand it. Just a yeah. it's an option. How many and how many agents in the Canton RA at the time? I don't remember. It's been a while for me. So numbers again. Uh, I know. I so, think there were eight. I was gonna say I didn't think it was very big. No, it wasn't very big at all. And that was really, that was one of the great advantages too, where when I came in, you as a new agent, they wanted you in a large field office because the theory was that you were going to get this really bad experience in the larger field offices. Uh, but for me, and, and Cleveland became designated a large field office. And so I, I didn't have to Mm -hmm. out of there to get my large field office experience. But the real benefit for me, I felt, was being in the smaller office where everyone worked a little bit of everything. So because I was designated cyber, I'm sent to the Cleveland division, but they realized I don't have a background or an aptitude for that particular area. They, they assigned me to coordinate a child exploitation task force. But even as I'm doing that, I'm being... Uh, constantly engaged with the work that other agents who are specializing in other things. Right. And here's a, right. And here's a, office. So, right. And some inside baseball, obviously on all that is it's weird for that, for an office like that. Cause we had what's called a funded staffing level of like 10, no, eight or eight or 10 cyber agents. And one was in Toledo and I think there were two, were there two of you in Canton or were you the only one in Canton? I can't, that I can't remember. Very briefly, there were two of us and yeah. then the other left. So they knew when I came in that they were losing the coordinator okay. of exploitation uh, cases in the Canton office. And so I was just immediately tapped to be the replacement and take the helm for that. Right. And so your, your FSL fell underneath my program, but since you were in the Canton RA, I didn't directly supervise you. That was a, it was a weird, it's a weird dynamic, yeah. right? Because yeah. there's responsibilities that I have for reporting what we do, but you, you are, you are assigned to a different supervisor who may have different yeah. priorities than I did. And let's be honest, he had different priorities than I did. Um, it was so challenging. It, was, it was uh yes, it was a good, it was a good, uh, leadership, leadership experience for me. I gotta say. Yeah. Well, I am grateful for your leadership. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, wow, what a training and equipping time, I will say. My time in Canton was in so many ways. And so it was a major culture shock. Every organization has its challenges. The Bureau has a lot of challenges. Um, but leaving where I was and coming into the, the FBI in that particular <laughs> set of circumstances <laughs> You're being very kind, I must say, because and uh -huh. I, I believe I'm looking here. It looks like that particular supervisor appears to be still in the FBI. 
Yeah, I had thought that he had left and then had lunch not too long ago with one of my former colleagues who told me he was he was still there. He's a unit chief. Yep. Geography was still there. Yeah, he's a, he's been a unit chief in OTD for six years. My goodness, he's been in the bureau twenty five. So I don't think that's well. I was told he he'd landed somewhere different. Well, it could be he just has. I'm I'm going based on LinkedIn, so it could. It's certainly possible he has an updated yeah, LinkedIn no profile. No longer in a supervisory. Oh, well, that's role, good. Well, finally, it only took twenty five years to get to that point. Well, well done, bureau. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. We, we, we digress down a, a road only you and I know. No, I'll go, you know I like rabbit trails. I'll go anywhere <laughs> yeah. you want to go with this. You might need to edit later. Yeah. I'm going to trust you to edit out the parts. <laughs> oh, there's nothing edited so far. So uh, so let me ask you this question since obviously it was a challenge, right? How many times, mm-hmm. at, when, so you got there, when, so you got there in so you, 2009. No, 2008, mm-hmm. two, 2008, right? Mm-hmm. 2000, yeah, you were class of 08, yeah, whatever. Yeah, 2008. It was May of 2008. Right, and I showed up there the next summer. So you'd been there a year and a half by the time I got there. So when you get there and you're in this, you're in this experience, I guess. Yes. How did it impact you as far as saying, okay, I, you know, I had this dream of wanting to be in the FBI. I've got to the FBI. I've done all these things. You know, and people would say, how, you know, what, you must have been a law enforcement major in, high, in college. Right. You must have been in the military. And you're like, nope, I was... Correct. The Habitat for Humanity public relations right. person. Like when right. I went I in, they said, all the time. right, exactly. So, so it is, it, it's, it's key to know that you don't have to be in law enforcement or a lawyer or any of that stuff. You just have to have capabilities that the bureau needs. And, and obviously you did. So you get in there and then how did that experience with a, let's just say, um, challenging supervisor impact your experience initially? Well, you know, I've got, I've got a couple things going on when I walk into that. I have an extreme respect for authority. So if someone is in a position of authority over me, and and part of that I just think is who I've always been and then being very close to the military. And so generally you don't question, you comply. <laughs> At the same time, I was also coming from this background, you know, I shared with you about my time at Habitat where I was working with people in some of the highest levels of government in every state and the country. I mean, I worked with the White House. So (laughs) I've seen the gamut um, of people, but what I saw for the most part was people who wanted to do good. Right. Yeah. Great. Yep. Uh And what I encountered was a whole different whole different dynamic. And now I saw some some sides of that particular supervisor where I saw him show incredible compassion, but also, frankly, there was such, I feel like, a need to control and a power trip. And I believe perhaps there was this expectation when I came in, especially with my not having a cyber background, that I was going to be this protege. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was going to teach me um, things. And um I would run up against decisions, instructions that I just didn't feel comfortable with. And I was coming to a point where I started to share some of my concerns with the people that I was working with every day. And, uh, you know, the Bureau has some different sayings, like the Bureau eats its young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I have said at times that agents are more afraid of their uh, management than the mafia. <laughs> there <laughs> have been some things ingrained in culture where you have these 
people, I believe, for the most part on the ground who are leading cases and really there to serve and protect. And there was my perception, perhaps, of the root culture where, and just a lot of history within the Bureau of you have folks who went into management for a long period of time, maybe because they were looking to climb the long rungs of, of power. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for a title. And and for the majority, I don't think that was the case. But then some of us would butt heads. If we're there to do the work, we're going to try to keep our heads down, put up with all of the things coming at us to the degree that we can, mitigate the things so they don't impact the public and just keep doing our jobs. But where I was, I think we found ourselves in some extreme cases. And I just came to some points where I felt the need to speak up. And from that point in time, as one agent later told me, you have a target on your back. Yep. And so, you know, folks had cautioned me that that was what would happen if I spoke up and I thought, well, that's completely inconsistent with the core values of the FBI, which I believed in so wholeheartedly, those values. And so I decided to operate in a place in a way that was consistent with those. And, you know, I don't speak up for myself. I don't advocate for myself. But when I see something that's going to cause harm for someone else, that is what, you know, again, going back to that's the theme throughout my story is I'm not going to speak up for me. But if I see an injustice, I can't keep quiet. And so by the time you and I met, <laughs> that had happened. And there had been a supervisor before you uh, temporarily who sat in your chair in your office who had uh, some of the, the agents. He was a very senior, mm-hmm. senior guy. And some of the agents who worked with me had alerted him to the circumstances. And he had really taken up my cause. Yeah. And, uh, Let's give him credit. John yeah. Kane. It was John Kane. Let's give him credit because yes. he was, yeah, thumbs up to John Kane. John Kane. Yes. I mean, I could not be more grateful for him. I was actually um, pregnant, I believe, at the time I met him. This is one of the things that had happened. Like my supervisor decided he just needed to get me out of there and was trying to get me transferred to a large field office before some things went through that could stop that because I wasn't what he had hoped I would be. Right. And um, it was it was really lunacy the way that would have worked for me to be. I, I told actually one of the ASECs when when a meeting with him was facilitated. I said, I understand the bureau's policy. I understand if I need to move, I need to move. But I don't want to give birth while I'm traveling down nine I ninety five with a moving truck. <laughs> right. And you know those are common sense things that if you are in a supervisory role, you want to take care of your people. So that they can take care of the American people. That's what I believe leadership is. And and so that office that you occupied for me was a friendly place that was about equipping agents with the tools that they needed to get the job done. And so um, I don't remember what I said the first time I met you, but lucky <laughs> you sitting in that same chair. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I was unfiltered and just came in and unleashed. And I'm glad you were like the last guy and not like my supervisor. I will just say, or right. that could have gone very badly for me. Well, if it helps, I appreciate that kind of that kind of bluntness because that's I that's my that's why I never really went above being a 15. And I that was I went kicking and screaming as a unit chief. 
really, because I was, I'm the same way. I'm like, if this is wrong, I'm going to tell you it's wrong. I'm going to tell you why it's crap. And then, but as a supervisor, I need to be a crap umbrella for the agents because the headquarters and other leaders and in the, in the, even in the division are going to crap down on things. And if you can protect the agents from doing that, they can do what they're supposed to do, like you're saying, to, to protect the American people. So that was always, that was always my approach. I don't know if I was ever, you know, worked sometimes, worked more often than it didn't, honestly, at the end of the day. Yeah. And you pay, you pay a price maybe for taking on that role, but it's the right role. Mm-hmm. And changing a call star takes a really, really long time. So there was a bureau culture uh, that was, I would say it was ingrained. I wouldn't say it's always intentional. You know, I think one of the challenges with the bureau is they kept putting people in charge who were never agents, who had never done the job. We've only ever yeah. had one director who served as an agent. Right. So the the intentional stuff. And then there's people who are appointed to positions in headquarters and making decisions about programs who have no comprehension of how their decisions are going to intersect with the realities on the ground. Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, even that you talked about the transfer, the transfer system, and that was a Robert Mueller thing. And, uh, I forget his name, first name was Schlendorf was his, Dave Schlendorf. That was, he was the HR guy. Again, he was an, he was an MBA from Harvard that came in under, under Mueller and did all these things that just really, you know, jacked with what was the, the, uh, culture, I guess, of the beer. But anyway, we're sidetracked. We're, we're getting off of that. We could, that should be a different. Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> um, Dave Schlendorf, how oh, I can't say his name, Schlendorf. And I had several interactions as well that came down the road after, uh-huh. And you had moved on from Cleveland uh, because I kept being that person who wouldn't be quiet. Good. <laughs> at the end of my time in the bureau here, here. So here's what's interesting. I don't know if I had shared it, this with you and we might be going down a rabbit trail. So <laughs> it's all good. This is, this is fun. But I kept being this person, right? Who would get along, get along, get along. I'm going to obey, comply, comply, and then wait. (laughs) That's not okay. (laughs) But then there were other people who wouldn't go first, Yep. but they would come along or they would say, wait, there's something here that needs to be heard. So, you know, I had made it part of my personal mission to avoid DC. I was never going to headquarters. Uh, one other agent in my office and I had decided we would just never even put in the paperwork that would make us eligible to go down that supervisory track. And yet, because of some things that I had experienced, had decided to be a voice for others. And so there were two committees that I had been selected for uh, to be a voice to headquarters. And it was interesting when I applied for the one, one of the agents said, they're never going to pick you. They don't choose people like you (laughs) who are going to tell them things they don't want to hear. But it turned out I was selected for that position. And I had a different supervisor at that point who had been looped into some of the previous drama. And uh, he really supported it. And so then I took that voice to headquarters. And I remember specifically Dave Schlendorf being in one of these meetings, I'm sitting, you know, at my computer in Canton, and I guess there's a conference room full of people in in D.C. And this was about a policy issue that was particularly affecting women in the Bureau. And 
to gain an understanding, right? We know as investigators to make good decisions, we need to ask good questions. And so they were going to create a survey. I was suggesting a question. Others on my committee were, were feeling that the same question should be asked. And there were several people with director in their titles in the room who said, yeah, but if we ask the question, they might think that we would actually do this. <laughs> yeah, there you we go. Ask the question. We might plant the seed Gee. in the minds of all these agents sitting out there in the field that we might actually make this change. And I said, well, if you don't ask the questions that get to the root of the concerns, you're never going to have the data that will help you make good decisions. And these are people, like you said, with Harvard degrees and they're sitting at desks and they're looking at numbers. But we know that data can say anything that you want it to. And I do recall what I appreciated about Dave Schlendorf was he said, he said I like data. And then he left. So I don't know what happened after that. He had to leave the room and go <laughs> to another, another meeting. Uh, but then at the very end of my time in the bureau, somebody thought I had some things to say, and I was actually taken to headquarters or headquarters to speak to. I think that's number two. You were looking at the organizational chart. In yeah, the, the deputy. And I got so De used to this, you know, beating yeah. my head against my desk because they're not listening. They're not asking critical questions. And uh, one of the folks who had been in that earlier room had helped facilitate this meeting I knew I was leaving. They didn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that probably also helped uh, me to have some freedom in what I spoke. Sure. So what year was that? So what year was that? That was 2017. It would have been the fall of 2017. I was in DC for the director's award. I received the award that afternoon. That morning, I had the meeting at headquarters. And then I left the bureau in May of 2018. Oh, do you remember who the deputy director was? Paul. A-B-A-T-E. Paula Bate. Paula Bate. Yeah, he was number three. He wasn't number two. He was. He is now number two, but right. he was number three at the time. He was the associate the deputy. Time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, associate deputy director. Yep. Uh, How'd that go? Well, I shared my concern and he said... I understand this issue. Uh, you can't fix it, but you can. I'm going to call down there and take care of this. And one of the um, concerns I had when I left the Bureau is there had been some things that I had been fighting for, felt I was a voice for, and I never saw them come to fruition. And there had been people at times who said, well, this is too hard. This would take an act of Congress. When I hear those things, I think, okay, let's go to Congress. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. Well, let's go. If we all go together. I mean, I don't know about the current dynamics right now. I think there are probably some things right now that you and I could share with Congress that would be really helpful to the decisions that they're making. But again, leadership and asking good questions, I'm not sure that they're primed for that right now, but that's probably a different conversation. Yeah. Um, but so I left with some things unfinished, but having said my piece, uh, and I knew that there were, there were other folks now who were, who were advocates, but what I was really surprised to find was even up to 
a year or so, maybe less. I've been, I've still received emails from people saying he was faithful to his word. That's good. Telling policies, and it takes a long time. It's uh-huh. been years. It's been over the course of years, but it takes a long time to change culture. You can change policy, but to change culture, and really all it was, was there's the stuff on paper, but there was also the let's use common sense. And somebody in that position who, again, I think there was some value and he had been an agent. Right. So he understood. I could have talked to his blue in the face to, to lots of other people, but he understood. And so there was the policy fix, but then there was also the human, let me just talk to these people and and take care of this. So, so what I would say was would be, I had had one particular perception of headquarters, all of headquarters, <laughs> through the duration of my career. None of it was positive. But then what I came to recognize was, which is obvious, we're all just people, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And there were people in that place who were trying to make good decisions. And I'm not saying all their decisions were great. I don't, I can't say that I know them well or had a window into all of the decisions that they were making. But it pains me when I see the public attacks on the Bureau and when I see assumptions being made and everybody being lumped into one thing and um, just these, the ascribing of intent and saying everything is conspiracy and the the Bureau is Right. Being, everybody, know, yeah, everybody's, everybody's dirty. Yep. It's just not true. Right. I don't believe it. No, At the same time, I have seen, I, I wrote an email to one of the directors about the culture and um, we try to fight the evil out there, but we need to fight it in here. And um, I believe he was, I believe that was the cause that he had, he had taken up, but um, he encountered a hard set of circumstances. I didn't agree with every decision that he made either. Um, but it's much more complicated than you think if you're on the outside. Sure. That, that, that's what, I not, him, what I told him was I've seen the worst, which also gave me the opportunity to see the best. Right. And, and, you know, honestly, with the, with the bureaucracy that the bureau is, you, and, and the only thing I take from Comey's time is he had a very good line that you can't, it's very hard to turn a carrier. So that's kind of what it is to, to trying to turn an aircraft carrier in the middle of the yes. ocean. It was like just yes. so trying to trying to make changes in the bureau is kind of like that. So it's good that that Abate was able to at least deliver on on that. And I, I'm sure he had he met I'm sure tons of tons of resistance on the way. But good on you for for, for bringing that stuff up. Yeah. Well, it was as I said, it was definitely a team effort. And isn't that ironic, right? The one place I never thought I would go. <laughs> I ended up yeah. only briefly for a visit. But also, I think one of the points I take away is also is you have all of these people who are clamoring for power and who would have loved to have been in that room. Yeah. I don't want to be there. Right. That makes it easier. Yeah. To, it makes it easier to say what you want to say because you just don't care. What are you gonna right. do? To, what are you gonna do to That's me? That's exactly what happened. And then Christopher Ray came for a, a meeting toward the end of my time. I knew I was leaving. Others didn't, and I pressed him on. Actually, uh, that was that was that was funny because they raised my hand. There was a 
a Town question Hall? that was asked and I didn't feel like he answered it. And so my hand shot up and I just saw the ASAC holding <laughs> the microphone. <laughs> and the SAC goes, give her, give her the mic. Was that Eric? What's that? Was that SAC Eric? No. It was, oh, um, before we don't need to say, Oh, come on. It's not the fun. But, but Eric, Eric, uh, What's Eric's last name? Eric, uh, Jesus. Anyway, Eric Smith. Eric, Eric Smith, Smith yeah. was one of the good ones. Yeah, he was a guy. I was gonna say he was. That's why I don't mind saying his name. He was one of the good ones. And actually, when yeah, I left, he wasn't the one. He totally would have given me the mic. Though. Oh yeah, yeah. But uh, no, it was one before him because uh, the one before him, one <laughs> things people told me. He called me right before I left and said, "I'm sure you're gonna hold us accountable, aren't you?" <laughs> that's good but he let me have the mic anyway um i don't even remember i was telling this story uh because ray ray you didn't like oh, ray's, ray's answer well, to the question yeah afterwards a few of the agents said you we we were scared that wasn't part of the plan when you when you raised your hand <laughs> um, but after they found out i was i was leaving they're like that's why you did it you knew that you were yeah I, I mean, there was freedom. I probably would have done it anyway, but it eliminates that. What are they going to do? Because I'm not, again, I wasn't speaking for myself, but I had this opportunity to be a voice for others. And honestly, the people who were voices for me, that's the position. They were all KMA. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Would come in and advocate and because you weren't, you weren't controlled by fear. So what made you decide to, what was the tipping point that may said, Hey, I'm, I've had enough. Cause so obviously you stayed in about 10 years. So what was it that flipped you out to say, I'm, I'm leaving this craziness? Well, honestly, at that point, I wasn't looking to leave. It was a three-year process. Mm -hmm. I had thought once I became an agent, this was it. I have my dream job. It obviously had its challenges, but I loved it. At the time I left, I had a supervisor who was incredibly supported. We had uh, great leadership in our office. I was seeing change that was coming. Uh, I, I loved my colleagues. I had great relationships with local law enforcement. And I was at a point where truly I could have skated in my career. I had just won the director's award and one of my human trafficking cases had been recognized as one of the FBI's top cases of the year in 2014. So whether I stayed or not, I probably didn't have a lot to fear, honestly, mm -hmm. um, because of that, I had opportunities that, that a lot of folks don't get in in a lot more years, not because their work isn't the same quality. It just, it just happened that way for me. But, um, and I think because of some of those advocates that has showed up in the hard things, but what was happening was I was seeing the volume of work coming in grow and we did not have the capacity to bring justice in all of those cases, specifically the human trafficking cases. And this is something I've wrestled with in a long, for a long time, how much of this, of many things do you speak? Do you speak publicly? Because in law enforcement, in government, so often we come from this place of wanting people to believe that we're the answer. And if you do bad things, you're gonna get caught and we're gonna stop you. 
but that's not actually the reality. And where folks are crying corruption, it's not necessarily corruption. I'm not saying there isn't corruption. I would say some of what I saw and experienced probably fits that definition. Um, if we went into some of the details of it, but some of it is the limitation of, of resources. So in Canton, I had started out working child exploitation cases and through that become became aware of, of trafficking, of what it was really to get up on myself, to get educated and to connect with others who were doing work in that arena. There wasn't any training uh, at Quantico, at New Agents Training on human trafficking. I think everyone- right. I don't think there was any, that. there was zero. Nothing. I don't, think they, I don't even think nothing. they ever mentioned innocent images, at least when I went through it. We never knew what that was until you got to the field office. They did mention that. They okay. did mention that in training, but nothing about trafficking. Um, we didn't have any trafficking cases until I started to look for them. And then once I started to build those cases and once I started to talk about it in the community and especially after I had this case that went to trial, so there was so much on the public record that I could present that in detail. And folks started to see the reality of it. And when they saw what a case looked like, they realized that they had seen those things. And so then we have this influx of reports coming in and I have stacks of work piling up on my desk. And I had I had this whole task force with amazing folks on it, mostly part-time officers who were constantly getting pulled off for things like child homicides, because those were the most urgent priority things. A trafficking case is something that takes a lot of time to, to investigate and obtain all the pieces of evidence that you need to put on the record to reach a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was seeing the movies, I was seeing the media coverage. I was see, seeing even our, our own agency putting out press releases about these kids that we had rescue, you know, you'd have um, all these simultaneous operations taking place across the country, and then they do a, a press release on the number of kids rescued. And we need to do those sorts of operations, but truly all of that's just the tip of the iceberg. And because of what was appearing in the public, law enforcement was coming under attack for not doing enough to mm -hmm. stop trafficking right they were thinking the solution looked different than what it actually does and so rather than bringing support they were making it harder in a lot of ways for law enforcement to do their jobs then the programs were not based the social services some of them programs uh, specifically some of the stuff that i was seeing coming out of places like um my own place of faith um, I was seeing people who I, I really believe shared my faith and wanted to do good missing the target because they didn't have the information that they needed. And so when a door opened up for me to go and work within a faith-based nonprofit and address human trafficking, and I was told that that could create a platform for me to share my message and establish the standards that we really needed to do that programming in a healthy way. That's the door that I ended up going through. Gotcha. So it wasn't that I had been looking uh, to leave the bureau. It wasn't that I gave up in, in frustration. It was very, very difficult for me to leave that job. I loved it. 
I thought I would probably retire from it. Um, I think the statistics are less than 1% of criminal agents, which I've been redesignated criminal and cyber is probably the same, but less than 1% choose to leave that job. Um, and so I became that rare statistic just because I believed I could do more good and have more of an impact if I left and I was that voice for, you know, just like I'd always been mm-hmm. <laughs> the voice for, um, what is true and how can we better serve and protect the vulnerable? So tell me a little bit about no more trafficking. What's, what is it? What's it do? How do people find out more about it? Yeah. So first of all, folks can go to our website, no more trafficking.org. No more trafficking is actually not the, the organization that I initially went to when I left the bureau, I was in that organization for, about three years and leading some direct service efforts. Uh, It was a priceless education. I learned so much um, behind the scenes of the challenges experienced internally in what has been the anti-trafficking movement. Uh, I really believe there are some things culturally that need to be reset in that movement. And just like in the bureau, you know, those Mm -hmm. things, the same things are true. across right. our culture. Sure. Sometimes some of the, the places that can be the force for the most good uh, have to fight internally the most evil. And I've seen trafficker tactics permeating the places that can be the greatest force to end trafficking. Things like deception, weaving false narratives, manipulation to reach a particular outcome. We've seen that internally. You know, that's some of what we talked about with with the Bureau. And so No More Trafficking is really about resetting the conversation based on truth. It's about eliminating trafficker tactics from every sector of society, everywhere, business places, government, social services, our own households, um, our educational system. So eliminating trafficker tactics and then empowering people leadership, truly good leadership will end trafficking. If we're not taking advantage of the vulnerable in any place, in any sector, I say we all inadvertently have used trafficker tactics at times and we've all fallen prey to them. Human trafficking is Uh, the cases are made on the most extreme instances when vulnerable people are exploited through force, fraud, or coercion. There's been a lot of focus on sex trafficking, particularly. There's been a movie that came out recently that has uh, encouraged a lot of conversation on the topic, although I have concerns about some of the narrative in that movie even using trafficker tactics, but sex trafficking and labor trafficking are essentially the same. The type of work is different. And we've become so focused on the sex trafficking, which we need to focus on, but we've become so focused on that, that we can miss labor trafficking and the slippery slope that we may find ourselves in, particularly in places of of business. If we don't understand what trafficking is, if we don't understand the tactics and if we don't inoculate ourselves and the people we care about, about those, those tactics. And so one, it's messaging and advocacy, but then two, it's building 
programming and empowering those who are building programming and doing it in a healthy way to, to, to provide the services that are going to come around people who are vulnerable, people who have been trafficked, and the people who are trying to do the work, whether it be in law enforcement, social services, or elsewhere, because they're all buried in that same stack <laughs> that I was buried in when I left my job as an FBI agent. They need our support. They don't need us accusing them of having malintent or not caring. They need the resources and the help to be put in the right places so that together we can get the job done. Well, Suzanne Lewis Johnson, thanks so much for taking time. I'd like to have you come back in maybe a couple months and we can talk more about no more trafficking in that aspect of it. Because I think that's a, a probably obviously a, an under-discussed um, area and obviously there's a huge cyber component to it. So I can squeeze it right into that part of it. So we need to have a further conversation on that. Um, but I appreciate your time coming on and giving us the uh, origin story of Suzanne Lewis Johnson. I would love that. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good day. You too. So once again, I want to thank Suzanne Lewis Johnson for coming on to give her origin story, how she got in the FBI, what she did while she was there. Um, we talked a little bit about her new nonprofit um, at the end, and we will have her on in, in, the, in the future to talk about child trafficking, because that's an important topic that I think needs some focus on just by itself. So we will do that in the future. As always, I want to thank everyone for taking the time to download and listen to this podcast and my Cyber Smart Morning News Update podcast. I uh, thank you for following me on LinkedIn. Um, because knowing you, as I like to say, knowledge is protection. And I am trying to help provide folks with, with just some kind of cyber intelligence, cyber knowledge that they can use to keep themselves safe. So they do not have to become victims of the variety of cyber threats that are out there. Um, and you will never have to contact the FBI. That's my goal in life among all the things I do. So as always understand the threats targeting you, assess your risk, proceed wisely, contact me. If you have thoughts, questions, comments on the podcast, my other podcast, any of my writings, anything, honestly, if you're just bored and want to email me and chat, feel free to do that as well. If you have tips for the cyber smart morning news update, you can email me with those as well. Other than that, I hope you enjoy your day. I'm going to, uh, one, one other thing, I'm sorry. I did a bunch of interviews at a recent cyber conference. And so I'm going to start posting those out pretty regularly. So you'll see uh, kind of a quick um, increase in tempo here for the cyber guy podcast. So, but those will be shorter and probably no more than 20 minutes each. So look for those coming out. I hope you enjoy them as always. Let me know what you think. Have a great week.